Please be seated. Good evening to you. Song of Solomon, chapter 3 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Come to the book of Song of Solomon if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible. Men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands marked right to the passage that we're uh, studying this evening. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Uh, tonight. And so, Song of Solomon, this beautiful celebration of godly courtship and of uh, marital pleasure. What diversity there is in the Word of God, isn't there? This morning here, we're talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Maranatha and Lord come quickly. And then we come to Song of Solomon and uh, this description of marital uh, relationships and godly courtship and um, probably one of the significant um, reasons why some people might pray to the Lord, uh, Lord, I wouldn't mind you delaying your coming um, in, in terms of getting a chance to fall in love and marry and enjoy all of this. But the Word of God is really amazing. We pick things up in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and uh, we come to the wedding night of uh, Solomon and the Shulamite. And she uh, uh, recounts uh, here in the beginning of it Solomon coming uh, to, she's up in Lebanon or near Lebanon, northern part of Israel. And he, of course, is centered in Jerusalem. He comes up to get her, sends this great band of, uh, to uh, come in, in all of the, his glory of his life day in and day out to take her from the wilderness to bring her to Jerusalem for the wedding day. And so she says, who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? I mean, it's awesome. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen kind of a light show with smoke, it's a little more like a battle scene imagery for those days. But uh, she's really in awe of this. They come like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. So that uh, he comes, the kind of the uh, limousine comes. It's an ancient limousine. And then all of these attendants, his good friends, his bodyguard, the royal bodyguard is uh, in attendance, all of them perfumed. After all, it's their wedding day. And uh, with all of the merchants' fragrant powders. And so all of it, they smell like all of the most costly perfumes of the day. Behold, it is Solomon's couch, she says. And it's kind of speaking about um, uh, one of those if you've ever seen in ancient times and not so ancient really where um, maybe they put a king or a queen or royalty in kind of an enclosed throne seat and um, then they put the staves through and the servants would then carry the person through the street. So he has sent uh, his version of a limousine or you know, a limousine hummer or whatever kind of thing for those days. But it's really... He's not going to have her walking uh, to Jerusalem. So this is sent in order to pick her up at the house with 60 valiant men uh, all around it of the valiant of Israel. His royal bodyguard is there. They all hold swords being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night, they're to, they're to protect Solomon and the Shulamite. So it's kind of like having a whole, you know, team of 60 Navy SEALs there to come and pick you up. You'd feel very protected, and she did. And she 
appreciated uh, all of that. She goes on and says, Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palaquin, speaking of that uh, chair that she was being transported in, that enclosed couch. He made its pillars of silver, uh, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem, lovingly made just for this occasion. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his espousals, the day of the gladness of uh, his heart. And so she is very thrilled. It's the wedding day. Both of them are thrilled. She's very impressed with uh, all of the special arrangements that he has brought uh, to the wedding. And of course, everyone ought to be excited and thrilled about their wedding day. And they are. In chapter 4, we come to their wedding night, their honeymoon conversation as they're experiencing the joys of the physical relationship in marriage. And it's interesting to note that uh, as he, uh, uh, here they are, they are uh, doing things in a godly way. This is the first time they're seeing one another uh, without clothes on, so to speak, or, well, so to speak, so to speak. That's just how it is. And um, so he sees her without clothes and he's quite impressed and um, you hear the old joke remember when God brought Eve to Adam and what name was he going to give her and he gave her the name whoa man (laughs) you know that's kind of what Solomon was experiencing on the night actually that's not what happened woman means out of man but it's still a nice joke and uh, so uh, we use it so this is a pretty special night Uh, for them. And as he goes through all of this, he is slowly taking in every inch of her body. He is really, really savoring all of this. He begins with her face. He begins by uh, describing her eyes and her face. And he begins to lavish great praise upon her for her beauty. He's a very, very wise uh, husband in that regard. And he works his way from kind of top Uh, down speaking about her eyes and her face. In other words, he wants to communicate to her that she isn't a sexual object to him supremely or merely, but she is a person and he loves all of her and, uh, and he loves every part of what makes her the person that she is. And so the ears, the eyes, as well as everything else about her. He says, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. And sometimes, you know, there's a little insecurity about what we look like on our honeymoon or our wedding night. And he reassures her that uh, he is quite pleased with what he's seeing. He said, you have dove's eyes behind your veil. And doves are known for peace. Uh, They're a symbol of peace. So uh, she's watching him. What's kind of the old song? Uh, uh, She's watching him, watching her. And she's very much at peace, enjoying herself as he's uh, taking all of this in. And so it's very uninhibited. It's very, very uh, beautiful. He goes on to say, your hair is like a flock of goats. So, again, there's certain things that uh, you want to find a more updated version of that particular praise. But it's speaking of the fact that her hair is dark. It's very full. Uh, wavy and uh, and so he compliments her on her hair like a flock of goats 
going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep um, which have come up from the washing. And so you wash sheep. They've been shaved or shorn. You wash them in the water and all. They come out and they're very white and clean and beautiful. So he's complimenting her on the beauty of her teeth. And then the fact that none of them are missing. He said, every one of them (laughs) which bears... Uh, twins. Listen, you know, I mean, he's taken everything in. He's a very appreciative. None of them is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, very red, very well-defined, beautiful. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind uh, your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. So probably speaking not merely of her temples, but also down into the cheeks. She's got very nice uh, red coloring uh, to her face. Your neck, don't try this at home, men. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all the shields of mighty men. The idea there is, I mean, you read that for the first time as a new Christian, you think, what in the world kind of a neck did she have? But it's a, you know, really strong one. You could put all those weapons, hang them off of it and everything. You look like a middle linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers. Your neck is fabulous. It's beautiful. So it's probably what it's talking about, and more than probably, it is talking about her posture. It's talking about the regal way in which she carries herself. So she's not hunched over, and she's, she doesn't walk with an insecurity and her head down and all. Um, she's not arrogant. She's not proud. But Uh, She knows who she is, and she carries herself in a beautiful way. And that's a big part of personal attractiveness is not only that a person has attractiveness, but then they also uh, know how to carry it in a humble way, but in a beautiful way as well. And so how she carried herself was very important uh, to him. Your two breasts are like uh, two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. So speaking about uh, their innocence and their beauty. Until the day dawns and the shadows flee away, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, probably speaking about her fragrant breasts, and he's going to uh, lose himself and uh, all of that. He says, you are fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Now, there isn't a woman in the world or a man in the world that you can say there's no blemish in you, no spot in you. At least you can't, typically you can't find a person who doesn't feel that about themselves and certainly on their wedding night. So she wasn't perfect. She wasn't that she didn't have a flaw. She's already spoken about what she perceived to be some of her flaws earlier in the book. But the, uh, he's reassuring her that there's no flaw that she has uh, in uh, his uh, eyes, that uh, this, uh, that she was absolutely perfectly beautiful to him. And of course, that's all that matters to her uh, at that moment. And so uh, this beautiful, beautiful expression on the part of Solomon toward her, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon, look from the top of uh, Amana, from the top of Sinir, 
and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards. And so she comes from the northern part of Israel up near Lebanon. And so he's basically saying, I'm sweeping off your feet. It's kind of a leaving and cleaving situation. We are, you're entering into a new life. Forget about everything that happened beforehand. All of the hardship of your upbringing, the poverty of the upbringing, the loss of your father and, and the hardship of working in the fields and all of that and forget about your earlier life. Now I'm going to take you into a completely uh, different kind of life. And so a beautiful encouragement to her. He then in verse 9, he goes on to uh, praise her love. He says, you have ravished my heart heart, my sister, my spouse, you have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. I mean, you just uh, knock me out. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, they drip as the honeycomb. It's just sweet and delicious to kiss you. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Well, how would he know that? Except that um, she seems to be enjoying herself as well. So honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And so all of the sights, all of the uh, uh, senses, the sense of touch, the sense of smell, the sense of sound, all of it involved in their loving making, love making, and she's not passive in it at all. So he praises uh, her love. And then in verse 12, he begins to praise uh, her purity. He says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an uh, orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of, garden, of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And so he praises her for his purity uh, in verse uh, 12 there where the, you see the phrase uh, enclosed, uh, the garden enclosed, uh, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. This is all a poetic way of speaking of her virginity. And he is thankful uh, that she has kept herself pure and presented her virginity to him on uh, his wedding night. And that is something that is very special for a husband and a wife uh, to present to their husband or their wife on their uh, wedding night. Another reason for waiting and doing things God's way. He likens his bride to a beautiful garden, and you read there, I happen to like gardens, and I, and, uh, I like you know, having a yard that looks nice and beautiful to look at. You read all of what he describes there in verses 13 through 15. It's the kind of thing where you come to somebody's house, see that garden in the backyard, and you go, wow, take me out there and explain this to me. That's beautiful. I don't want to just look at it for a moment. I want to, you know, really 
take some time to appreciate it. And uh, so that's how he, yes, he's saying that my bride is uh, enjoyable to me in that way. She is something to be lingered over and to be enjoyed, uh, her beauty. The consummation of the marriage occurs in verse 16. Uh, into uh, the first verse of chapter 5. She declares, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, speaking of her body, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And then she, he comes, chimes in, and he declares, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb uh, with my honey, and I have drunk my wine uh, with my milk. And so he accepts her invitation. Uh, They consummate the marriage in a wonderful, beautiful way. He mentions here myrrh and spice and honeycomb and honey and wine and milk. All of those were luxuries in the ancient world. And so he is saying to her, she is better, this moment is better than all of the luxuries in the world all rolled together uh, to be experienced. And so in a poetic way, he is expressing his complete satisfaction uh, with her. And then he speaks to his friends and what is uh, a, a wholehearted endorsement of marriage. He says to his friends, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, Oh, beloved ones. And so he heartily recommends to his friends marriage and the marriage life. And it's always wonderful when, you know, marriage gets a bad name. And, uh, boy, I think of younger people and how marriage is just what it is, what it can be for so many. I was listening to, it's interesting, this week I was listening to a little uh, five-minute podcast where somebody was... um, uh, was interviewing a pastor in the South, and he's having a, ter- a remarkable impact upon um, uh, young men, especially black young men, bringing them out of the difficulty of their childhood and their background into being successful in life, in the American dream at all. And as, as he was being interviewed, he said something interesting. This very very fascinating interview. But he talked about the fact, he said, the first thing I tell them they've got to do is they've got to forgive their parents for the failure of their parents. And, uh, you know, I mean, it just breaks your heart. And it's not related to black families. It's all families. Uh, it represented heavily in all races in the United States of America. But what's been, what's, how marriage is, or the family unit's been redefined, how casual, how broken, how messed up it is in the eyes of so many people. And it's wonderful when someone steps up and says, this is still great. What they made of it, they made of it. But you can make it into what you want it to be. And here he is. He says to his friends, he says, I heartily commend to you uh, the marriage and uh, the marriage relationship. Now, by way of observation at this point in uh, in the book, I think that it's wonderful to recognize uh, because this is a, a book that speaks about the physical relationship in marriage, the freedom that's uh, involved in, uh, in that uh, in that relationship. And you notice these two are enjoying themselves without any inhibition. 
I mean, they are, this is a real, real celebration that's described here. My version of it has been very PG&G, but trust me, they are having a great time uh, on their wedding night. The interesting thing about it is to realize that each of them, uh, in terms of how it's being portrayed here in the book, each of them comes into the marriage as virgins. It's described there in verse 12. And yet there's no sense that, oh, there's some kind of, they've lost something by coming into uh, their honeymoon as virgins, that somehow they lack experience or whatever for, you know, for the uh, fireworks to go off and all of that kind of thing, that, that they've lost something for lacking previous sexual experience. Uh, not at all. They're having a wonderful time. And it's wonderful to uh, marry uh, the person uh, that, that has saved themselves for you and then spend uh, weeks and months and years growing in the physical relationship uh, with them. You don't have to find out with ten partners before you get married or even one partner before you get married uh, to come into marriage God's way and uh, enjoy all of its fullness. Both of them seem to be doing very, very well. Now, in chapter 5, verse 2, uh, they have a little bit of a problem. And uh, so a misunderstanding happens, a conflict happens. And so some time has passed from the time of their uh, honeymoon and their wedding night. And at this point, we shouldn't view them any longer as uh, newlyweds. Now, no marriage is without problems or without situations that require attention or conflict or misunderstandings. There's always uh, those things that have to be worked through. Anytime you're bringing two descendants of Adam and Eve together and you are making one beautiful thing of them, there's, uh, that's going to take a little bit of uh, give and take. And so uh, they run into a little bit of a, of a problem here that they've got to work through. But when those uh, misunderstandings and difficulties are properly handled. What they do is they bring depth to the relationship. They bring a maturity to the relationship. They, it brings even an increased intimacy uh, into the marriage. When it gets poorly handled, though, it can really bring a lot of damage uh, into the marriage relationship. And so here we have an example of how to successfully handle a misunderstanding or a conflict. And this conflict that is described here by the Shulamite, it takes the form of a dream sequence. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And so she has this dream. She is uh, asleep in bed or not kind of in between, you know, in terms of, I don't know if I'm asleep or I'm awake or whatever. And he is gone somewhere, uh, probably away in his responsibilities of his job. After all, he is the king and all. And uh, he comes then, knocks on uh, the door, approaches her, knocking, at, you know, for her uh, admission and for her to greet him into the home. He's been outside for enough time that his hair is wet and his clothing are damp. 
damp with the, the dew of the night. He's probably traveled a great distance to be with her. And without a doubt, um, he has traveled uh, into the night that great distance with the idea of spending time with her, being intimate with her uh, physically, probably coming with the idea, she doesn't expect me, I've made this long journey, I'm going to surprise uh, her. Now, in verse 5, uh, later on, when she uh, comes and takes hold of the door where he had knocked on the door and tested the door to try and get in, she discovers that liquid myrrh was left on the handle. Myrrh is a symbol uh, uh, throughout uh, the book of, of Song of Solomon here, very much associated with lovemaking in the psalm. So it's clear that uh, he came and he has a desire to make uh, love to her. And so he comes to the door, and this is what she responds with. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? This is the ancient version of, honey, I've got a headache. Uh, When you don't really have a headache. When you have a real headache, that's legitimate. But it's not legitimate to not have a headache and say you have a headache. So she's, he's not as special in her mind at this point. She's kind of taking the relationship uh, for granted. And so she kind of puts him off, gives some excuses. All of them are kind of uh, lame excuses that she uh, gives here. And and she's ex- expressing kind of indifference toward him and toward his uh, uh, desire. And so uh, she's probably getting, and this happens, sometimes it happens the other way around with a man, but she's probably getting a little too comfortable uh, within the relationship at this point. So um, in the sense that now she has what she desires most in the marriage, and that is she's married, she has companionship, uh, she's gotten the man of her dreams. She's very secure in his love. She has a home, etc., etc. Life, the marriage is exactly all the things that she wanted most out of the marriage. Those things are hers. But what she's lost sight of, and this happens all of the time, even today, she's lost sight of the consciousness of the fact that her husband might be bringing a different set of expectations to what he would call a happy marriage. And in his case, that involves not only companionship and a home and the love of his wife, but also a robust sex life and complete with her being sexually responsible, uh, responsive to his uh, advances. And so it can be very, very easy Uh, to understand and value what we desire most in a marriage, what we prize most uh, within a marriage. But it's also important for us to carefully discern concerning our spouses, this is both ways, concerning our spouses, what is important to them in this marriage and to make sure that I don't, in the comfort of what I've received from the marriage, then cease to be sensitive to what is important to them. And uh, all of this is very, very important 
in the area of the sexual relationship. That is the context here. And it isn't unusual for one of the first conflicts within a marriage to be over the subject of sex. And very often it has to do with what Solomon and the Shulamite are experiencing here. And uh, that is, uh, he or she is... Uh, desiring intimacy with their spouse and their other spouse and their spouse is not interested and so what do you do when something just like this happens within the marriage the apostle paul wrote about it in first corinthians chapter 7 and he said uh, nevertheless because of sexual immorality let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband let the husband render to his wife a due affection, the affection due her. This is talking about the physical relationship. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, the, the spouse is to be taken into consideration. And when there is a broad gap between uh, the sex drive of a husband and a wife, the one with a lesser sex drive has to stay sensitive to the stronger sex drive of the other spouse. In Christian marriage, there is only one place for the expression of the sexual relationship, and that is in the marriage. And so if the one with the weaker sex drive uh, says, I'm going to build our sexual relationship around what I'm comfortable with, they're going to create all kinds of problems uh, for the other spouse. And sometimes this works uh, uh, differently in terms of it can sometimes be the man who has a stronger sex drive, the woman who has a stronger sex drive. But Paul goes, do not deprive one another except with consent for time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So neither spouse, Paul says, is to be indifferent to the sexual advances of their spouse to deliberately and unnecessarily uh, refuse their desire to partake in the sexual relationship. And uh, if one partner desires a sexual relationship, the other spouse should respond to that desire or it really can create great difficulty within a marriage. Now, having said that, that I also want to be careful to say that there needs to be on the part of both partners a sensitivity to the larger context of life. There are legitimate headaches. There are legitimate hard days in life, long days at the office. Um, uh, there are trials, difficulties, physical limitations that occur, all of those things. So the person who wants to have the sexual relationship, if the day is one where it's just like, wow, this is a really rough day to kind of pull your defraud, not one another verse out of your, your hat. I mean, be sensitive to where he or she is coming from today. Uh, it is very important to take, uh, to, for both sides to be understanding all of that. But the point is, is that the sexual relationship shouldn't load completely uh, to one or the other, each one should have a sensitivity uh, to the other partner. So uh, she gives these very poor 
uh, excuses, my feet, I don't want them to get dirty and all. Well, I'm sorry, I just traveled 200 miles on horseback. No, we certainly wouldn't want uh, your feet to get dirty. So you can see how he might take something like that. So she immediately regrets, though, what she's done here. It's too late. He's already left. But uh, she says, my beloved put his hand on the latch of the door. He was trying to get in. And my heart yearned for him. She has a change of heart in terms of how she's treated him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hand dripped with myrrh. Ah, that's what this was about. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles uh, of the lock. And so uh, by this time she discovers that uh, he has... Uh, gone, she opens the. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. And so she uh, immediately regrets her actions here, and she uh, goes out to search for him. My heart went out to him when he spoke. I sought him out, but I couldn't find him. I called him, Solomon, Solomon, I'm here. I'm sorry, what you know? But he gave me no answer. He's long gone by now. And then in her dream. The watchmen who went about the city, they found me, they struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the wall, they took my veil from me. And so here she is in this dream. They're abusing her because, of, and, and she now realizes how much she longs for his protection and she wished she had never put herself in this place and all. And then she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am lovesick. And so she calls on them to join her uh, in her search uh, for, uh, for uh, finding her, her husband here. And she expresses her regret uh, to them over what it is that she's done. They then rebuke her and they say, What is your beloved more than any other beloved? You say he's like, he's just the greatest thing in the whole world. He's so amazing. He's so wonderful. He's such a hunk. He's such a nice guy. He loves me inside and out and all. And then you treat him like this? So you say one thing about him, but you treat him a different way. What are you, you, you know, you're, you're treating him like he's, he's nothing, you know, like you, uh, that he's something special, but you treat him like he isn't. And so they say you're confusing. You're sending mixed signals here. What is your beloved more than any other, uh, 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 than another beloved? Oh, fairest among women, women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you so uh, charge us. And so how special can he be if you treat him uh, in this uh, way? And then in verse 10, she responds to their question with her own kind of ode or song or poem uh, to his good looks and what uh, his friendship means to her. My beloved is white and ruddy. So he's, he was fair-complected, and uh, ruddy means reddish. He probably had red cheeks and a red complexion, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold, and so uh, it's, it, it is, the finest gold is doubly refined gold. His locks of his hair, they're wavy and as black as a raven, so his hair was wavy and thick and jet black. His eyes are like uh, 
doves, peaceful and gentle, uh, by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. They're just perfectly set in his eyes, perfectly uh, in his face, perfectly proportioned. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, like the banks of scented uh, herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping uh, liquid myrrh. And so uh, just talking about how wonderful and soft his lips were and how nice it was to kiss him. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. And so his hands were attractive to her and uh, valuable to her. His body is carved ivory. So we're talking about abs of steel here. It's always, it's always been important on some level or another to very fleshly carnal women. Um, <laughs> So, you know, he's talk, she's talking about, I'm just kidding, by the way, if you're new here. So he's talking about, uh, she's talking about his face in verses uh, 10 through 13. Now she starts to talk about his body. He's the whole package. He's great looking and he's a hunk on top of it. So it just, he just makes me sick. I just hate this section. Of it. So it, beautiful. Look at these hands that are wonderful. His body is just tight and in shape and inlaid with uh, sapphires. Uh, His legs are pillars of marble, strong and stable and attractive, set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like uh, Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether uh, lovely. He is uh, handsome in every way, again, both in his good looks in his face and also in his uh, physique. And then she goes on to speak about what she loves, not just beyond his appearance, but what uh, she values him for, not just that, you know, he's a boy toy or something like this. He says, she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So his, her appreciation for his friendship and uh, for his love. That's what he valued. This is my best friend in life. He's not just a good-looking guy. He's not just some kind of a model. But this is a wonderful person who loves me and with whom I have a relationship. And, of course, it is that friendship and that relationship that brings the greatest beauty to a relationship and uh, to the physical relationship uh, as well. It's a very good uh, marriage lesson that comes out of all of this. She has begun to take him for granted. And again, this works both ways in in a marriage relationship. And she makes a mistake. There's a misunderstanding. This is a real problem. Uh, Sometimes it's funny how the little things, the little misunderstanding in a marriage get blown way out of proportion, becomes a big, gigantic mess. And now you've got real problems in this marriage. And what she does in this whole uh, kind of misunderstanding, the potential for damage here uh, in, in, the message, in, in the marriage is she just stops and she just takes some time to think about Solomon, to think about what it is that um, he, she finds attractive about him 
beautiful about him, the blessing that he is in her life. Again, it works both ways. And as she begins to think about those things, she begins to realize that this little hiccup that we're in the middle of right now doesn't even compare to the beauty of the relationship that we have, uh, the gift that he is to me. And she regains perspective. It never does us any harm when in a marriage there is a misunderstanding or conflict for a partner to pull aside and just quietly between them and the Lord remind themselves of all of the blessings that are found in this person how wonderful the friendship is, what a beautiful person is, what an amazing thing that they have committed their life, their only life they have to be my husband or to be my wife and to think about all of the blessings that uh, they are. And sometimes you see people throw away unbelievable blessing that the other person is over some comparable little piece of nonsense And yet they do it and then the relationship ends and then for the rest of their life they kick themselves over. How could I allow that relatively small thing to uh, just uh, dominate all of my thinking and my vision at this time and I ended up throwing that guy away? or that husband away, or that wife away. And so the importance of pulling back in a time of misunderstanding and saying, let me reconsider uh, the blessing that this person is in my life so that I don't take the relationship for granted and so that I don't throw away something that is very, very valuable and I will regret for the rest of my life. Where uh, then she informs her friends after all of this that things end up working out and she informs them that everything is okay now. And so her friends speak and say, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? And her response, and they're asking basically, Have you found him yet? And her response essentially is, yes, I found him. He's returned to me and uh, everything is back to normal. And she's speaking about everything, but she's speaking also specifically uh, sexually. In other words, I won't make that mistake again. My beloved has, con- has gone to his garden. Intimacy is restored to the beds of spices to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And then in verse uh, 4, and this is beautiful, the progression, it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, song here uh, that is, is written. Solomon does something very, very wise. She's made a mistake. Um, she's created a, a small but potentially significant crisis within the marriage. And um, she realizes that she's made a mistake. She's gone to try and make things right. Things are made right and all. And immediately following her failure, 
He reassures her in another description of her beauty. This whole idea is to reassure her uh, that, uh, that whatever problem we went through, it doesn't compare to the depth of my love for you, my appreciation uh, for you. And it's so important when someone makes a mistake uh, in a marriage relationship and they do everything that they can to make that mistake right, that the other partner doesn't give them the silent treatment or shun them or make them pay for what they've done, those kind of, you know, uh, passive-aggressive or whatever they call that kind of stuff that, that goes on, but to immediately come in and give immediate reassurance uh, of their uh, love and of their appreciation to their spouse because sooner or later, if you stay married long enough, the shoe will be on the other foot. You will make the mistake and you'll want grace from her or vice versa. And all of us are going to need grace in a marriage uh, sooner or uh, later. Now, this description that he gives here, it's very similar to the description of her beauty that he gave uh, earlier in uh, the letter, but that's by design because what he's doing by repeating so much of, of his praise of her beauty is he's basically saying, my love for you isn't diminished in any way by this problem that we've had. Listen, everything is good. He said, oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, one of the beautiful cities of Jerus- of Israel at that time, lovely as Jerusalem. So awesome is an army with banners. And so here you have an army coming onto the battlefield with banners and all. That's an awesome sight to see, especially for a king. And uh, he says, man... Uh, that kind of thing just takes your breath away. He says, you're still taking my breath away. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats uh, coming down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Uh, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughter saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, they praised her. Who is she who looks forth and uh, is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And so uh, he's speaking about the moon and he's speaking about the sun and um, and basically taking, talking about uh, the fact that she's more beautiful than the heavens. Now, let me take a moment to, to talk a little bit about verse 8 and because it's important to look at related to the Song of Solomon. And hopefully I can remove a stumbling block for some of you, especially women, uh, related to the Song of Solomon. And the stumbling block is Solomon himself. Because we all know biblically that this man ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's easy to hate a guy like that. And, um, and then you look at a song like this and you think, oh, brother. I mean, if it was anybody other than Solomon that would be putting this together, I could enjoy it. But in the back of my mind, I just, it, it just, he just creeps me out. And so just a quick show of hands for how many of you actually feel that way related to Solomon. So verse 8 is 
uh, it's very common for uh, readers to assume that this refers to, it's kind of a subtle reference to the early uh, stages in the development of Solomon's uh, you know, harem, which was quite legendary. But that's not what's being communicated here. When he speaks here of 60, 80, without number, that's a Hebrew way of using ascending numbers to indicate a indefinite number. And what he's saying basically is you can take all of the women in the world from whatever social class you want to choose and from among them there is only one for me. Now, we come to the issue of Solomon's uh, harem here. Again, it can really diminish our appreciation for uh, the description of the love and the purity in the song uh, for many people. It is understandable. So what do you do? You simply ignore Solomon, in a sense, uh, in this book. And here's, uh, here's how you do it. You just focus on his office as a king and not what we know of him personally. So you imagine him as if there's no other history in the Bible related to him. You imagine him to be what he is portrayed as here by the Holy Spirit and nothing more as a powerful king who is head over heels in love with a woman from a simple background who then courts that woman and marries her in a godly manner. In the same way that we do not allow the folly of Solomon to spoil the book of Proverbs for us. He was the wisest man alive at his time, but who ultimately applied none of that wisdom to himself. But that was his loss. God's wisdom was still God's wisdom. And so none of us takes the book of Proverbs and throws it away and says, well, because Solomon didn't live up to the standard of it, this book has nothing to offer to me. We differentiate between the wisdom that comes from God, the revelation that comes from God, and the vehicle that he used to bring that wisdom into his book. I personally don't doubt that God might have authored this book deliberately through Solomon Uh, so that for the rest of his life he would have to live with the knowledge of the beauty of what he threw away due to his own lust and to realize, yes, I have 700 wives and 300 concubines, but I'll give my right arm. And maybe you don't feel that in your 20s, but you will later in life. I would give my right arm to have been attracted to one woman and married one woman and stayed married to her and enjoyed sexual intimacy and the relationship that God has, I'd give all of the rest of this and my right arm to experience what I threw away and I never valued at that time in my life. And I think that it's entirely possible that the Lord wrote this through Solomon in order that it would be something that he would be uh, confronted with. So don't let Solomon and his silliness, so to speak, his uh, lust and all, ruin the book for you. Now, when he praises her in this way, she is very, very thankful uh, for it. And so 
her perspective of the reconciliation here. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the uh, verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. And so she was thankful to find that his desire for her, his love for her was still budding and that it was still uh, fruitful. Her friends then declare, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. So they, uh, they're they d- desiring that everything returns to normal for her and for uh, the beloved. And she responds, what would you see in the Shulamite as it were the dance of the double camp? And so humbly she cannot understand uh, what it is that they see in her why they saw beauty in her, the beauty of a graceful dance, but she is appreciative of it. Now, the intimacy, as we begin chapter 7 here, the intimacy and appreciation for one another, uh, the Solomon and the Shulamite, all of that resumes unhindered. How beautiful are your feet uh, in sandals. And so he begins to describe her once again. Now, this is a wonderful lesson for men as well. Sometimes, uh, sometimes men, we can be, uh, we, we can do a lot of thinking and saying in our minds. Things that are there, they're in our heart, they're in our emotion, there is this appreciation, but we never articulate them. And the importance of not only thinking these things, but also saying them. Now, you'll say them different than Solomon said them. Otherwise, you'll say, have you been reading the book of Solomon? So, uh, Song of Solomon, nothing wrong with that, by the way. But here is this, he verbalizes uh, as things are back to normal, the resumption of the intimacy. How beautiful are your feet in sandals? And so, he's going to go feet to head, you know, on, on things. Oh, prince's daughter. Uh, The curves of your thighs are like uh, jewels, the work of a master, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet which lacks no blended uh, beverage. Your body is intoxicating as wine. Your waist is a heap of wheat. Boy, he was doing so well, wasn't he? Well, they take the wheat and they bind the sheaves together at the center. So she had this shape. You know, that's what it's talking about. You're shapely. And uh, your two breasts are like two fawns, uh, twins of the gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like uh, the pools in Heshbon. They're blue uh, by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose, oh boy, is like the tower of Lebanon. And so... Uh, very, very well-shaped is what he's saying. The tower was a beautiful structure, and he commends her in that way. Gentlemen, be very careful about some of these images, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, majestic, beautiful. The hair of your head is like purple. It's rich, it's full. The king is held captive by its tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love 
with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree and take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine. The fragrance of your breath, so he's thankful for this as well, is like apples, so she had sweet breath. And the roof of your mouth is like the best wine. And so she responds then and, uh, and d- uh, declares, the wine goes down smoothly. Or really, he's continuing. I think it's broken up incorrectly in my Bible. He says, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, uh, moving gently the lips of the sleeper, sleepers. She then responds in all of this very poetically. Uh, she communicates to him that she is going to be extra sensitive to his approaches in the future. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge um, in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance and at our uh, gates and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, old, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. And so he, she communicates the fact that, um, that, you know, that this is, that she's learned here and that, and, and her commitment to all of this. But then she also suggests that, you know, after we've been through what we've been through, why don't we just get away somewhere? Let's return to someplace rural, away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. Let's go back up to uh, the northern part of Israel, my hometown, and let's just spend some time there and uh, just focusing on our relationship, one another, and uh, the intimacy. And, and uh, she says, and then in the midst of this suggestion to him, she says, Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of my spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. What she's talking about here is in that um, Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, public displays of affection between the opposite sex, um, even between husband and wives, is frowned upon and even forbidden in, in certain cultures. And, and uh, so not allowed it at all. But she thinks back to when she was young and with her younger brothers and all, and they would hold hands and run and just the way that kids do and, you know, kiss and all of these uh, kind of things that would happen where as a kid, all the kids could get together, hold hands, they love each other, they'd kiss and, and all of that uh, you could do publicly and there was no concern at all and she wishes that she could show her beloved that kind of innocent affection like kissing and holding hands uh, anytime, anywhere without the restrictions of kind of the cultural uh, norms and she just she's basically saying I hate the fact that in the culture I, I can't show my affection to you fully and demonstratively in, in kissing and holding your hand and hugging you in any old time uh, that I want to again in verse uh, 3 
she describes uh, the, to her friends that sexual intimacy is, uh, is wonderful. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And then she adds the charge. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And so her warning against any sexual activity before marriage, do it God's way, and, uh, and then be able to enjoy the fullness of how God uh, wants that relationship to be expressed. So here in verse 5, uh, Solomon, the king, he takes his bride back to her hometown uh, for a visit. As they're approaching, a relative recognizes her, you know, they're probably unannounced kind of, and the relative sees her. And uh, here is kind of the a small-town girl who's made good. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree where your mother brought you forth. There she bore you. Uh, there she who bore you brought you forth. And so she remembers the day of her birth. Oh, Shulamite, it's so good to see you. You've come back home. I remember when you were born. And look what life is, uh, how it's rolled out for you and, and all in the celebration. In uh, verse 6, uh, the Shulamite, she uh, expresses her fresh commitment to her love for her beloved. She says, it's, and it's really one of the great descriptions of love uh, in all of literature, including the Bible. She said, uh, set me as a seal upon your heart. And in Old Testament times, a seal was used to, to um, uh, indicate ownership of a person's valued possessions. And so uh, she asked to be her lover's most valuable possession, so to speak. Let me dominate your heart and your actions and on your arm. So set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, that is, as irresistible as death. Wonderful love is a very powerful powerful thing when it grips our lives. It's a wonderful thing. Jealousy is cruel as the grave and its flames are flames of fire, a most uh, vehement flame. And so the love is as possessive as the grave. Once it gets a hold of you, it never, ever lets you go. And it is uh, as uh, passionate as a blazing fire. She says, many waters cannot quench uh, love, in other words, no earthly power can break love. It can persevere through anything. There's a beautiful thing about love. Life has a lot of ups and downs, a lot of floods, a lot of everything. But love, man, that that holds. And uh, again, a beautiful description of love. If a man would, uh, if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. In other words, money can't buy. Love. So the Beatles were right, weren't they? Um, they happened to stumble onto some truth in some of their songs. So, the, but love, the idea is priceless. You can't buy it with money. And you can be the richest person in the world and you can't buy, you can't make somebody love you. Love is something that is given. It's given as a gift. 
and, and you can't buy it, and you can't buy it from somebody else. That's why when someone falls in love with you, when somebody loves you, they are giving you th- th- something that is so deep and so priceless uh, to you. And, and it's beautiful. And it's beautiful to think about it in our relationship with the Lord. There's nothing we could do to ever earn his love. He gave us his love. Because he is in love with us. And so it cannot be purchased for any amount. It is a gift from the person who is uh, giving it to us. Now, the, she has, she's in her hometown. Her younger brothers, they have a question about a younger sister. And they said, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. So she's uh, still immature. And what shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? For if she's a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So you've got these protective brothers concerning their younger sister. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, she hasn't reached maturity yet. Nobody's showing interest in her yet to marry her. But they're determined to protect her purity, whether by personality she is a wall or a door. In other words, a wall would be an introvert. A door would be an extrovert, whether she grows up and she's a a reserved or an outgoing person. How do we protect her? Uh, What do we do to protect her so that the same thing that happened to you ends up happening to her? And the Shulamite's answer is very beautiful and very interesting. She said, I am a wall. That's what I am by personality, an introvert. And my breasts are like towers. I'm fully mature. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. And so she declares that she protected her purity, number one, until she was mature and ready to marry. And the key to sexual purity, she said, was not only found in her determination to remain pure, but in finding a man who was is as equally concerned that she be pure on her wedding day as she was, a man who would not put pressure on her in this regard, but to be at peace in this regard. And again, any man, Christian or otherwise, who pressures a woman to have sex with him without first marrying her has no concern for her peace. For her physical peace, her mental health, her emotional health, he only has a concern for his own lust. And that's what's being communicated here. And the kind of man, that kind of man reveals himself to lack the spiritual maturity and the godly character uh, needed in order to be married or to make marriage what it needs to be. And so she's saying that kind of a man has to kind of work things out in his own life before he ever thinks about marrying uh, someone else. She is also saying here 
that uh, she declares that a woman attracts this kind of man uh, in more ways than just in her physical appearance. She attracts such a man by making him the priority and the focus of her life after the Lord himself. So Solomon, uh, she goes on and says in verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone has uh, to bring. Uh, f- uh, everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. Oh, my vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who keep its fruit, uh, two hundred. And what she's saying is that Solomon had many, many vineyards, more than he could ever manage, so he leased those out to others who would farm the vineyard. And maybe the Shulamite's family was a part of that, and they would return a thousand shekels of silver in profit to Solomon and they get to keep 200 shekels of silver for themselves. And so the idea is that Solomon, she recognizes my husband is a busy man. He's involved. Life is complicated uh, for him. And so she says, my own vineyard is before me. That is, he is my vineyard. I will make him the priority in my life after the Lord. I will keep my focus and my attention and my care centered upon him and not scattered in a hundred different directions. And a man notices that in his wife when he is a priority and when he ceases to be a priority. And we really face a a major obstacle to that in Western culture and in the culture of the United States of America where now um, it requires for so many families two incomes in order to make ends meet. This is very different from when I was a child, and I'm not that old. Um, but a lot of things have changed, and so now you've got this redefining of marriage as this kind of equal thing, and, uh, and a man is like a woman, and a woman is like a man, and all of this, and it, it, it please. Um, God knows how he made women, and he knows how um, he made men. And women have a need to be loved by their husbands, but husbands also have a need to be respected by their wives and to be a priority in the lives, uh, the life of their wife. And so often that all gets lost and it creates a lot of damage. She's, she's busy, he's busy, lots of different things and all, but she says, I'm determined uh, not to have other things in life Crowd that out as me always making him a priority, the priority in my life after uh, the Lord uh, himself. Now in verse 13, it's time to go, and so it is, isn't it? So we're glad we're at the end of the book here. I've run out of time, but when has that ever stopped me? Uh, as Don McClure says, I thought about it later related to this morning's message, you know, Don always, he's never troubled uh, by how long he goes, in, in my experience. Um, one time I heard him teach an hour and 45 minutes uh, straight. Uh, I think he was given like 50 minutes. But he, he has this line that he says, well, listen, I'm running out of time. Let me tell you what I would have told you if I had enough time. And then he just <laughs> simply preaches everything that he wants to anyway. It's a great line. I'm glad you can laugh at it. I'll begin to use that more. um, uh, And all Don's very, very quick here. But it's time to go here in verse 13. They visited the family and the village. And uh, 
and time to leave this kind of family gathering and all that's happening. She is, as Solomon says, you who dwell in the gardens, the the companions listen to your voice. Uh, Let me hear it. So it's time to go. But she's surrounded by her friends, surrounded by her uh, family, and, and, and she's so crowded around that he can't even see her. She's the center of attention, and he loves it. And he loves the sound of her voice and the fact that she is the center of attention. And he doesn't just care about her outward beauty, but also what she has to say, what's on her heart, what's on her mind. He loves watching her, watching her enjoy life. He just loves to hear her uh, talk. And then the Shulamite responds by saying, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And so she uh, expresses her desire uh, to flee with him and to be intimate together. So after all these long years, their desire for one another remains fresh and it remains strong. So this beautiful book of the Song of Solomon, beautiful celebration of godly courtship and marital pleasure. So sexual relationship is God-given and it is good. It is only to be expressed within the marriage relationship, only with the person who doesn't just want your body but wants all of you. They're in love with your mind. They're in love with your heart. They're in love with your interests. They're in love with you and they love you enough to commit to you in marriage. And then when you put all of that together, then you don't have to worry about the sexual relationship coming together. That'll all take care of itself. Amen. I'm just kidding. I didn't know how much of an amen I would get, but I'm thankful for that. Amen. Amen. Amen, it does. It works that way. Let's stand together and let's pray.